We are in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, so we're picking up again with the sermon series through John. So if you're looking in the Pew Bible, once again, you'll find this, John chapter 12, on page 1065. And here's where Jesus begins to talk about his death and clearly to describe what is going to happen with his death. And the Gospel of John now turns a corner. And uh, this is a challenging passage. As we read it, we try to figure out what all is happening, what all the pieces are, are doing, and how they all fit together. And you start looking into this passage, and you find it's very challenging. Jesus is speaking to us. This, these are like, like dying words, like last words. They're very weighty. And he's got a focus on his heart that he wants to drive home to us. So may his words speak to us this morning. John 12, 20 to 36. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew... Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, speak to us today. Open your word to us. Open our hearts by your spirit that we might hear and understand that we might receive the words that you have spoken here. 
have your way in our lives. Open our minds to receive from you. Lord, glorify your name. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So there are a number of questions that come up as we read this. The first question I want to ask is, is Jesus impolite to foreigners? Because, you know, this passage has a very nice little beginning. There are some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast and were very happy because they want to see Jesus. And so they come very tactfully. They find Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. It's just, actually, it's just over the border from Galilee. Uh, so uh, he's from the Greek-speaking end. He's, he's more the Greek guy. So they pick on him because uh, they think, you know, he's going to be their man. And uh, they come to him and say, we want to see Jesus. And then Philip gets Andrew. And the two of them come and talk to Jesus and uh, say, they're these Greeks who want to talk to you. And then Jesus starts talking about his death. And he goes on and talks about seeds. And he talks about his heart. And, he, and then the voice comes from heaven. And it's like, yeah, but, but wait a minute. You just brushed off these people. So is Jesus impolite to foreigners is, is what this is all about is he's just kind of arrogant and he has no time for for Greeks he's only for the Jews um, I think that it's not the case I think that what Jesus is doing is speaking to these Greeks and I think that what we read in this whole passage is his interview with them and this is their chance to to hear from him and this is how the conversation goes uh, and one reason I think that is um, this was a huge festival. There were massive crowds that had come into Jerusalem for the Passover. They came from all different countries. This was the big day in Jerusalem. So Jews from everywhere. And look, you see, even foreigners are coming to Jerusalem to worship because they respect the Jewish religion and they want to know about God. And so there are huge crowds here and nobody has a cell phone. So how do you find each other? You know, how do you connect with people? And so somehow these Greeks, they recognize Philip. They got a hold of Philip. And so uh, Philip says, okay, sure, I'll take you to Jesus. So he's making his way one way or another. He gets a hold of Andrew. And so it's the two of them. But you know, when Philip is trying to go find Jesus, he didn't leave the Greeks somewhere in the crowds. He didn't take their telephone number. He didn't put them on his appointment calendar or or promise to send an email. No, they're right with him the whole time when he sees Andrew. They're right with him when Andrew and Philip come up to Jesus, and they're all right there. So when they ask Jesus and say, these people want to talk to you, they're saying, these people right here. And when Jesus replies, he's replying right to them. And so Jesus has not Uh, brush them off. He hasn't dismissed them. But what happens here, it does seem like the conversation is one-sided, that Jesus enters a monologue, that Jesus doesn't interact with them, and we get the feeling, so that's why when we read it, we get the feeling like, what happened? There were some Greeks, and you know, they disappeared because Jesus just launched in. And what that is, is Jesus' characteristic focus. And you know, if we encountered it in, um, in, the, in that first little conversation in, in John 2 when Jesus' mother comes to him and says, you know, there's no more wine at the, at the feast. I wonder if you could help. And he says, 
dear woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It's like, whoa. Um, uh, we get another, another occasion, John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at night to speak with Jesus, a teacher of the law. He says, good teacher, we know that you are a man sent from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing unless God was with him. Now Jesus gets to answer. What is Jesus going to say? He's going to acknowledge the compliment, you know, carry on the conversation. No, 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 no. You must be born again. What? So Jesus has his spiritual focus, what he wants to get across to people, and he moves right to it. Um, and so that's, that's how it is in this case. Jesus meets the Greeks. There are, maybe there was more introduction and back and forth, but John isn't interested in telling it to us. Either way, he has Jesus just diving right in and talking about his death. Well, why would he talk about his death? You know, it's very relevant. Because now we have, Jesus is beginning to get an international following. Or at least uh, this is, this is one of the, the times when this comes out, that people from other nations are following Jesus. They're interested in Jesus. They come from other nations to Jerusalem to, to know about God, to worship God, and they want to see Jesus. So he's getting an international following. And so when he talks about his death, he's talking about his mission and its relevance for all the nations. Because Jesus' death was not only for the Jews, it's for the Greeks, it's for the barbarians, the Scythians, for slave, for free, for black, for white, for people in Cohasset and people in Weymouth. It's for people all over the world. Jesus' mission is his death. His death is his mission. And his death is for people all over the world. So Jesus takes the conversation and he steers it right to his own subject and uh, starts to uh, teach the Greeks about his death and teach the whole crowd about his death. Um, in a sense, he's sort of telling them, well, time's up. It's too late. But in a sense, he's saying, this is a perfect time because my message is just beginning to go out and it's just beginning to come to you. Well, I want us to look through Jesus' speech and the things that he says uh, in response to, the, to these Greeks coming. And uh, we're just going to go through verse by verse. But what we're going to see is that because Jesus serves the Father, because Jesus is centered on the Father's will, and uh, we're supposed to follow him, that when we follow Jesus, everything seems backwards. Jesus follows his Father, and that makes sense. It's good that the Son of God follows God. He's obedient, he's holy, he's righteous and good. And we're supposed to follow Jesus. Okay, that's fine. But for some reason, when, when we look at what it means to follow Jesus, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. There's a disconnect. And that's not a comment about God the Father. It's not a comment about God the Son. It's a comment about us. That when someone comes along who's right side up, he looks upside down to us because there's something wrong with our perspective. Because Jesus serves the Father 
following him feels backward. And so that's the, that's the common thread I want to trace through this, this whole statement. Everything sounds so confrontative, so upside down, so confusing, so backward because we're self-centered and Jesus is God-centered and he wants us to follow him. Uh, starting in, in verse 23. So Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus speaks about his death, and he says, It's glory. It's glory. It's not shame. A, a follower's view of death is going to feel upside down. When we follow Jesus... The view of death that's expected of us is going to feel upside down. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's going to be hung up on a cross. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be put there to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be shamed, to become a curse. And he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So um, his view of death is topsy-turvy, it's upside down. It's glory, it's not shame. And uh, next verse, we see that he really is talking about death because he, using a little bit of a parable, he talks about it very plainly. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So he's saying that his death is faithfulness, not failure. So it's glory, it's not shame. It's faithfulness, it's fruitfulness, not failure. By his death, he'll bear fruit, and his mission will not fail. So he'll be like a grain of wheat. The grain of wheat has to fall to the ground and stop being a grain of wheat in order to accomplish its mission. And Jesus says, I have to fall down and die. I have to come down to the earth all the way down until I die. And that's how I accomplish my mission. If I don't, I'm like that grain of wheat that just stays single. And I don't bear much fruit. But if I fall down and die, I bear much fruit. So Jesus' perspective on death is upside down, and a follower's view of death is going to need to be upside down. It's glory, it's not shame. It's fruitfulness, it's not failure. It's gain, not loss. So this is where he starts telling us what our perspective needs to be. Verse 25, he turns to us, he says, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If I'm going to be a grain of wheat and fall to the ground and die to save all of you, then you are going to need to be like me. And the man who runs after all the things of this life, his passions, his pleasures, his joy, his pride, is going to end up empty. But the one who gives it all up for me will gain everything. Ah. Yeah, so 
It's a different perspective on death. It's a, it's a glory, it's not shame. It's fruitfulness, it's not failure. It's gain, it's not loss. And it earns a reward, not pity. Death earns a reward, not pity. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. Jesus is going to be going to the cross. And if we're going to be his servants, we have to take up our cross and follow him where he is. That's where his servant needs to be. And then he says, my father will honor the one who serves me. There's a reward in dying with Christ. So what a, what a huge challenge. So he's talking about his death. And we all know, isn't it good news that Jesus died? We call, we call you know, the day that we commemorate his death, you know, Good Friday. Good Friday, because it, he did us good by his death. But when he talks about his death, uh, it's, it's just challenging. It just turns you upside down and inside out. Wait a minute. Shame is glory, and loss is, is reward, and and failure is fruitfulness. Dying is, is gain. This is all crazy. Your loss may be the best thing that happens to you. There's a, um, a book that's been in print for hundreds of years. It's the journal of a man whose life was a complete disaster and failure. There, were, there was actually remarkable success in his life. But the big picture was it was success amid, uh, you know, a cascade of failures. And, and, and all of his hopes and dreams were just going down the drain day by day as he wrote his journal. Um, the man died at 29 years of age of tuberculosis. It was a disease that was developing over a period of time. It was probably made worse because of the living circumstances he was in. Uh, he was a missionary to the American Indians. And so he was living, you know, in a handmade hut out in the woods in, in, uh, in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, down in New Jersey. And, um, uh, you know, he, he, with the tuberculosis, you know, he would make the fire inside his hut to st- stay warm and, and be, be in prayer. And then the smoke would be so bad he can't breathe and he's coughing all over the place. So he goes outside so he can breathe and he's cold. And, uh, you know, just a miserable, miserable life. His, his whole life ambition was to be a minister. And because of some disparaging remark he made in his senior year at Yale, he made a remark about a professor. He was, uh, you know, ejected from the school. And so he could not become a minister. It was against the law at the time, the way that they had things set up. He had to graduate from Yale. He tried again and again to get back into Yale and finish. They wouldn't have him back. They were just so strict with him. So he became a missionary to the Indians. His name is David Brainerd. His journal was written by, uh, was edited and and, uh, published by Jonathan Edwards, and it's never been out of print since. He inspired two two schools, Princeton and Dartmouth. And it is his suffering, and it is the, uh, the setbacks that he experienced that make his faith shine. And it's because of that that his journal has inspired uh, missionaries and inspired ministers and inspired Christians and continues to inspire people of God 
to live a real life as disciples and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to see God at work in their lives even to this day. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe your loss is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. It, it seems like it was for David Brainerd. You know, if he had been happy and healthy and gotten everything that he wanted, his life probably would have had much less impact and we would have never heard of him. So a, a, a follower's view of death feels upside down. A disciple's view of death seems upside down to us. A disciple's motives feel inside out. Jesus begins to talk about his motives as he faces death, and he challenges our motives. So let's look, verse 27. So verse 27, what's moving Jesus' heart? He now begins to talk about it. Now my heart is troubled. And, uh, you know, in the other Gospels we read of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, outside the walls of Jerusalem at night, the night before he's arrested and put to death. And he's praying, and he's asking that the, somehow the cup might be taken from him. He's, his sweat becomes like great drops of blood, and he's in misery. And this is the amount that we get it in the Gospel of John. We just get this one line. Now my heart is troubled. You know, I'm going to die. Yeah, I'm going to be glorified. How? I'm going to be glorified by being hung up and mocked and ridiculed, and it's going to be terrible. I'm going to be abandoned by God. I'm going to become a curse for all of you. And now my heart is troubled. It's terribly troubling. And so what does he do? What would you and I do? Well, I know what I would do. I would try to get out of it as hard as I could. But what does Jesus say? Now my heart is troubled. John 12, 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He accepts trouble. So that's a different perspective. That's inside out. He's got God's concerns at the center instead of his own concerns. So it's an inside-out set of motives. He is centered on God the Father instead of himself. It's completely the reverse of how I'm centered. So he seeks God's glory. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. It's so troubling for me, but Father, glorify your name. It's worship. That's what's at the heart of Jesus' motive, of Jesus' attitude, and it's what needs to distinguish, it's what does distinguish God's people, is a heart that's taken up with awe and joy about God's glory. So Jesus is taken up with God's glory, and he says, Father, glorify your name through me. Do something wonderful and glorious through me. This is miserable for me, but I want you to be glorified as you take me right through this. He was convinced it was the Father's will. So he's accepting trouble. That's inside out. He's seeking God's glory, not his own comfort. That's inside out. 
But then, verse 29 to 30, he's pleased with the benefit that goes to others instead of to himself. So he cries out to the Father, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others thought an angel had spoken. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. So God answers his prayer and speaks from heaven. And Jesus sees the point is so that they can believe and know and understand that I am their Savior. That when I go through this which is now troubling me and will bring me down to death, that they will know that I am their Savior and that they might have life. It will be for their benefit. So this is the thing that drives Jesus. This is his motive, the benefit of others. So he sets aside his own trouble. He seeks God's glory and the benefit of others. Inside-out motives completely, uh, completely turned around from how ours are. And these are the motives of a disciple. This is what he calls us to be like, to follow him and to have our hearts set on God's glory instead of our own comfort and our own good. Well, a, a, a disciple's view of death feels upside down. A disciple's view, a disciple's motives feel inside out. And a disciple's view of the world feels backwards. So Jesus now talks about the world and how his death and his mission are going to connect with the whole world. And so, obviously, because he has the Greeks here, this makes sense. Now, now the whole speech is starting to come home. The Greeks are really uh, getting their answer. So, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world now the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world is Satan, and he operates by uh, manipulating and exploiting self-interest. Our selfish desires are his tools of the trade. That's what he uses. But because Jesus is going to come and be raised up on the cross, Satan is going to be out of business. He is not going to have a place like he's had up to this point. And the other thing Jesus says is that now is the time for judgment on the world. Up to this point, people who have been selfish have been at the top. But from now on, there will have been one person who has lived a holy life dedicated to God and to God's glory and has followed that through all the way to the end. There's going to be a plumb line next to the wall. And we're going to see how it, how it fits. There will be judgment in the world. There will be a measure against which to compare all the people in the world because now the Son of God has come and has lived and has died for sinners. 
So, um, Jesus says that his death is going to defeat his enemies. It's going to disarm his opponents. So, a guy being killed is going to disarm evil in the world. The death of Jesus does so. And he says that his death is going to draw the nations. In, in verse 32, uh, 30 through 33, he says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is going to draw all the nations to himself. And... Um, what he's doing is he's exerting some kind of power on people everywhere. I will draw all to me. I will draw all men to me. And the word uh, to draw is like the word to drag the net out of the, out of the sea so that the, all the fish can be up on land when Peter drags that net out of the sea. It's the word used... Uh, when Paul is dragged out of the temple, when Paul is dragged before the courts. Um, it's the word uh, when they couldn't drag the net into the boat. It's when you apply force to something to make it move somewhere. It doesn't necessarily want to go. It's not easy to make it go. And Jesus says, I am going to drag all to myself. I'm going to put some uh, effect on people when I am lifted up. And I will draw all to myself. There's a power in Christ's crucifixion that attracts people and draws people. And I tell you what, it's the last thing in the world I would have ever thought would draw people to God. But there it is. It's a horrifying, ugly reality. You know, execution. Public execution. Of the worst kind. And uh, this is what God will use to draw all men to Christ. It's, it's, uh, it's a backwards, upside-down view. But it works. It works. Would you just keep your finger there in John 12 and just flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2.11. Ephesians chapter 2, you find it on page 1157. And here, Paul is talking about the work of Christ and what Christ has accomplished. Now, he's writing a letter to people who have heard the gospel preached. Jesus has, this is long, long after the days of Jesus. And, uh, and he's so full of joy because of what has been accomplished by the cross. Look at what it says. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's like Greeks and, and uh, people like us, barbarians, Scythians, slave, free, whatever we are. You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those that call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall 
of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was that he might make one new man out of the two. Those Greeks came to Jerusalem to join in the festival, to worship God, but they were excluded. If they had converted and become Jews, well, they'd no longer be called Greeks, would they? If they had converted and become Jews, then they could be included in the Passover. But because they're Gentiles, they can only enter into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And if they try to go in any further, there are signs up that would say, under penalty of death, you will cross this line if you are not a Jew. So they were excluded by the dividing wall of hostility. And they were kept out. They were foreigners to the promise. They were excluded from the covenant. And they were not part of God's people. And all of his blessings were for Israel and not for them. But Jesus has broken down that dividing wall and has brought the foreigners in. Jesus draws all to himself. Well, the, the view of the world seems backward, and so the worldly are distressed. Verse 34, they say, wait, we thought that the Son of Man, that we thought that the Christ would remain forever, that he would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, Jesus is referring to that great passage in the Old Testament that talks about the sufferings of the Savior, Isaiah 52 to 53. And in Isaiah 52, 13, the first verse of that passage, it says that my servant will be exalted. He will be lifted up. He will be raised on high. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, so disfigured was his appearance. So he will be crucified, and that is how he will be lifted up, and he will be raised up and uh, exalted on high. So Jesus is exalted up on a cross. Jesus is ascended up to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is exalted high. He is king, and the world is completely changed. It's not the same world. So... What shall we do? Look at verses 35 and 36. He tells the crowd what to do. They're saying, they're, they're confused. Wait a minute, how can, the, um, how can the, the Messiah be lifted up? How can the Son of Man be lifted up? We need him to stay here and be with us. We just want a little help. We don't need someone to die for us. We don't need a new king. We don't need the world to be remade. We just want a little help against the Romans. And uh, so Jesus says, no, no, indeed, I am not going to be here much longer. Um, but here is the hope that you should focus on. Verse 35, Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So Jesus is the light of the world. And he's calling us to look to him, to trust him, to focus on him, to let him be the center of our lives, to let his light and 
shine in our lives, that we might be sons of light, that we might be lights like him, that we might be little lights just the way he is a light. Death is a frightening, terrifying thing. It, it undoes us in, in every way. But Jesus faced it because he knew that it was the path for him to accomplish our salvation. We will all die. Life is fatal in every case. But there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus died and rose in our place. And more than that, there is hope to live because if we can live as his followers, death doesn't win. And we can stare death down. And we know that we can have victory over death. We can have victory through death. That death isn't our loss. That death isn't a shame. That death doesn't need to bring us pity. If we live and die for him and not for ourselves. The Lord Jesus is so full of grace and mercy. And it's all there on the cross. Grace and mercy and forgiveness and pardon. But oh, how challenging it is when he talks about it. Let's pray. Lord, would you work in our hearts, challenge us, lead us to walk behind you, to be your followers, to walk in your ways, to be sons of light like your light. Work in our hearts today, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.